Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. As hard as it is to believe, we say goodbye to the tens, and at midnight on December 31st, welcome in the 20s. Most people, although not alive then, remember in the last century, we had the roaring 20s of the Gatsby era, only to end literally with a crash and the beginning of the worst depression in American history. The good news is that was then, 100 years ago, and this is now. That being said, as 2020 approaches, many investors are feeling anxious with global political tensions, a primary source of their worrying. In fact, in a recent UBS Investor Watch survey, it was revealed that 79% of investors think we are entering a period of higher volatility, with 66% viewing the markets driven more by worldwide events than actual corporate earnings. We are ending, financially speaking, for 2019 with a brief look at not only the year ahead, but the decade ahead, as significant environmentally and technologically-led innovations continue to disrupt the existing norms of our world. Our tour guide today for the show is Justin Waring, a previous guest on, on our show. Justin's with the Chief Investment Office, and our goal today is to help you make the most of a future that is yet to be defined. So welcome back, Justin, to Financially Speaking. Thanks for having me, Mitch. So let's start with a recap of 2019, as the end of 2018 was, I guess, a little scary. Well, not I guess, it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the roaring 20s and sort of the hangover effect of, of a previous period. In many ways, actually, it's the, it's the reverse this time from a decade perspective and from a year perspective. So the last decade that led into this decade was the lost decade when we had the tech bubble and it took nearly 10 years to fully recover from That's the true. losses. And so to that extent, this has been an abnormally good decade. It's been an abnormally good year, both because we were coming out of environments where valuations were depressed, expectations were low, and that provided a big tailwind to returns. So as we look forward to 2020 and indeed the decade ahead, I do think that it's natural for us to say we're going to expect lower returns and, and higher volatility because this has been the only 10-year period that saw a half cycle of market returns. We were going off of the trough to where we are now. The cycle's not over yet, but we're unlikely to, to see a repeat of the recovery either from the near bear market levels of last, last year's fourth quarter or the 2009 market levels, which were in the context of, of fears of a global recession that, that might even double dip. Right. And so, you know, as we look forward, be very grateful for the great returns we've had this year across mm -hmm. stocks and bonds and right. almost everything has worked this year. But also don't expect a repeat. We are recording on December 3rd. So if this does air <laughs> and things have changed, just remember that. Yes, that's right. The caveat being, yes. you know, December can be cruel sometimes. Right. <laughs> so in the year ahead report, we call 2020 the year of choices. So why don't you walk our listeners through some of the key questions that need to be answered starting this new decade? So there are, obviously it's an election year uh, in the U.S., uh, and in the U.S. presidential election and congressional elections are going to have a major impact on whether we stick with the current policies or whether we shift back 
to what we had under President Obama, for example. So we are calling it stick or twist in our in our year ahead report. But it's not just the U.S. We also have decision that needs to be made in, in the U.K. regarding how Brexit will play out. We have an election as we record this in a, a little bit over a week from now to determine the makeup of the U.K. parliament. But it will take many, many months to determine exactly what the characteristics of the Brexit deal will be. And it depends on far more than the composition of parliament. It depends right on the ability of them to negotiate. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. We know that already. Exactly. (laughs) It could be a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there have been many um, false dawns on that front. So that's one sort of choice that that we've been highlighting for 2020. Another is related, which is the the outcome of U.S.-China trade relations. And in fact, the future of uh, of global trade in general. We're talking about negotiations between the two largest economies in the world. They're ability to find a compromise and, an, and a solution to the many varied uh, conflicts that have been sort of simmering for a long time will very much determine what the template for global trade negotiations will look like in the year and decade ahead. We think our base case scenario is based on a sort of detente with with a, maybe a, a little bit of uh, tariff rollbacks, but we see a very significant chance of a negative tail risk in terms of a failure of those negotiations. We've seen, just as with Brexit, we've seen many false dawns in, in the U.S.-China negotiations of right. attempting to, to reach an agreement. And in fact, those have resulted in an, in an ongoing ratcheting of tensions and ratcheting of tariffs. So... We're hopeful and 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 we think that in our base case, we will see not only a detente, but perhaps even a rollback of some of those tariffs, which would blunt the economic impact as we go to 2020. But it's a really big binary choice we have to keep an eye on. And so that's definitely something that factors into our investment recommendations for 2020. And then the third thing is about the, the balance between fiscal and monetary policy. In the year and decade leading into this, we've seen a change in the nature of monetary policy. It's become more of a replacement for fiscal policy in some places than was previously viewed as appropriate. We have negative interest rate policy and zero interest rate policy across most of the world, and indeed negative yielding debt across uh, much of the bond market at this point. The efficacy of, of monetary let policy... You, just, yeah. Let me just stop you for a second, because we talk a lot about trying to keep jargon out on this show. So negative yielding debt, I, I think people need to really understand that. Yeah. Specifically, obviously, that's happening in Europe. Yes. So you, you put your money in the bank and you pay the bank. No. <laughs> How does that work exactly? <laughs> so the bank pays the central bank. So a central bank is basically the place that the bank that you deal with has to deposit your money with. Right. Normally, they are paid a deposit rate in exchange for giving uh, depositing the, your reserves with them. In negative interest rate policy countries, the bank is is actually having to pay the central bank. Most cases, that's as far as it goes. You get no no interest rate on your deposits with them, but you're not charged a fee. In some countries, banks are trying to pass on that cost now to clients. When it comes to negative yielding bonds, these are bonds that were issued with a positive coupon, but have rallied so much that their price is well, well, well above the par value. So when it actually, as they approach the maturity date, when they're going to pay face value, the loss of principal is going to outpace the cumulative coupons that you're going to collect on that security. So nobody's ever going to buy that bond unless they bought it initially. Well, I mean, you might want to buy it to avoid negative deposit rates. Well, (laughs) if If you're a bank, you'd rather take your client's reserves and buy a bond with those because it might be a lower negative rate. Right. 
And also, you know, owning government bonds has an intrinsic value for some investors. Government bonds can rally in deflationary and recessionary scenarios, whereas cash in the bank doesn't have that effect. Mm -hmm. And so owning longer duration, high quality bonds can give you a portfolio diversification effect that, that allows you to reduce the risk of other parts of your portfolio. So if the equities in your portfolio decline and all you have is cash, you sort of mute the volatility of your overall portfolio, but not much. If you own bonds that rally at the same time, it has a much bigger effect on allowing you to take equity risk without suffering drawdowns. So so let's talk about the 2020 election, because obviously that's something that's on everybody's mind and will be throughout 2020. So how can the average investor adapt to all the possible political risks when there is so much uncertainty? And let's just say that passions are running hot. Yes. Well, the first thing is to not allow your personal political preferences or fears or hopes to become a major instrument in deciding how to invest your portfolio. Right. You know, you have to express your political view with a vote, not with a trade. Right. And the other aspect is that there are many things that are possible, but only one thing will happen. And so at some point, we do have to decide what are the likely outcomes of the election, which things are most affected by the range of possible outcomes, and then weighing the balance of risks, mm -hmm. just like we are with any other forecast. We have to right. weigh the balance of risks. What are the things that are most vulnerable to surprises? And so when we think through U.S. politics, right now we have a congressional majority for the Democrats in the House, a, a Senate majority for the Republicans, and the presidency controlled by the Republicans. The status quo is clearly Republican legislation that, that was passed under President Trump. And barring a, re a recapture of the House of Representatives, that will remain the status quo. Any new legislation will need to be compromised in order to get through the House of Representatives. That's the status quo. So any disruption of the status quo has to be viewed as either less legislation getting through or more Democratic legislation getting through. So that's the that's the decision we have to we have to make is what are the what are the aspects of the of our portfolio that are affected by policies that would be either fail to be passed because of a lack of bipartisanship in Washington or the ability to be passed under a blue wave scenario where the, where the Democrats capture the White House and a controlling share of of the House and Senate. And so the main thing to note is that legislation has become increasingly difficult to do under any mixed Congress, even when the Republicans had technically had control of the House and a small majority in the Senate, there were things they couldn't accomplish because they needed unanimous consent among their membership. Right. And so as we think through things, the most likely change coming from the 2020 election would be executive authority. Will President Trump continue in a second term to exert executive authority where he can to guide American policy? Yes. Might it ramp up a little bit from where it is now because he'll feel vindicated and maybe a little bit more frustrated he wouldn't be able to get anything done legislatively, it's possible. But the main sort of fulcrum around which policy is going to shift is if there's a Democratic president. A Democratic president would likely unroll everything that, that President Trump did through executive order, reenact many of the things President Obama did, and go a little bit further. Of course, it depends on exactly who becomes the nominee. Right. So we have to think about which sectors of, of and which asset classes are affected by that that's the biggest magnitude shift, and it's the most likely change. And so one of the things that we are, we are highlighting is 
consider focusing on sectors that are less exposed to that binary risk. Right. So if we think about healthcare, uh, technology, financials, and energy, these are all aspects that face the risk of partisan, well, I don't want to say partisan, but definitely Democrats would apply more regulatory scrutiny if they had control of, right. of the White House. Right. And in the case of technology, it's not that clear that the election matters because there seems to be a bipartisan consensus that something needs to be done vis-a-vis uh, privacy and things right. like that. So they're likely to face some regulatory headwinds anyway. So this is already something you should be thinking about. In the case of healthcare, there's also a bipartisan sort of consideration on how can we control drug prices. It's just been mired in a lack of bipartisan consent on what to do about it. I think that anyone investing in the healthcare sector does have to think about how will their portfolio be affected by a myriad sort of implementation of, of possible legislation under a Republican legislature, a bipartisan legislature, and a Democratic legislature. This is probably not a a binary outcome. And then we've obviously our election watch report series is going to be covering a lot of this. In, in, right. in a we, lot we, of have, we have a wonderful man in Washington, John Saverkul, who produces these wonderful Washington weekly reports. And I'm actually going to link to this at the bottom of the show if you are interested in receiving those reports. And we'll keep you up to date because obviously we are a year away. It'd be just as easy for me to predict what my New York Mets are going to do than uh, who's going to win the election next November. Exactly. I do do think the Mets win the World Series, but I'm just going to throw that in. So, you know, most importantly, people, you need to vote. So UBS is calling the decade ahead the decade of transformation. I assume you're not just talking about more Transformer movie sequels, I hope. So let's talk about some of the trends that your team are seeing as we look forward to 2030. So, yeah, of course, just as predicting 2020 outcomes is difficult, <laughs> so too is trying to give a theme to what will happen in the next 10 years. I still feel like it's 1979. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, that's a bit humbling to, to do a historical analysis of futurism and see what trends we expected versus what actually happened. Many science fiction stories and, and TV shows predicted a lot of technological advances, but almost none predicted the cell phone, for example. So we, right. we need to be a little bit humble about our ability to predict the future. Fortunately, there are some things we can predict with a high level of, of accuracy. So one of the things that we're highlighting is uh, demographics. Working age populations in developed countries is likely to fall. Uh, we've got an aging demographic. We've got fewer children. It's automatic that without a net immigration, the working age population is going to decline. And at the same time, we see a lot of political populist pushback against increasing net immigration in a lot of countries. And so that's likely to remain the case. If we want to ask ourselves how that changes society, we can look at Japan as an example of a country that's gradually declining in population and is restricting its immigration. But we probably shouldn't take too many lessons from Japan because they are also unique in a number of ways. But this does create a, a challenging, a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities. An aging population does provide a, a greater demand for healthcare. There are opportunities in that space that we can take advantage of. They're going to need a, a lot of uh, technology to to take over the labor-intensive parts of the healthcare industry. And so health tech investments are an opportunity to sort of invest in that and help get ahead of that change. We write very politically correctly in the report, a less favorable political backdrop for mm -hmm. wealthy individuals. Right. That's code for higher taxes, likely, for wealthy people, a more progressive tax system. There are some things that we will need to address in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis the idea of a wealth tax, a much more progressive tax system in terms of income taxes, things 
such as we saw with the the 2017 tax change, where some deductions that we used to take for granted, like the state and local tax deductions, might be curtailed or or eliminated entirely. And so, as we think about how to prepare for that as investors, we have to think about tax diversification right. in a way, you know, can we spread our assets across taxable accounts, IRA accounts and Roth IRA accounts to leave us less vulnerable, maybe slightly less optimal under the current tax code, but less vulnerable to and, change. And we're talking about an entire decade of investing here. We're yeah. not talking about next year specifically. So we're really talking yeah. about a, you know, a long period of time, which is typically the amount of time people should stay in the market. Right, exactly. And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily have an impact on asset class returns, right. but it is important for our clients to think about how that affects their personal after-tax wealth. Right, and, right. And, and the good news is, we, you know, tax diversification is a relatively cheap way of addressing fears about the, these types of things without having to predict exactly what the changes will look like, which, of course, is, is very difficult. The third aspect is an ongoing pause in globalization. We've seen global trade as a percentage of GDP kind of plateau for quite a while now. President Trump has started to lead the country in a way that that, that uh, maybe we're going to become more self-reliant, have fewer imports. That definitely could have trickle-down effects to the rest of the globe as well. What the future of globalization is, is not clear. Again, as we were talking about before, it's going to depend very much on how U.S. and China manage to find a compromise. We could continue to grow global trade as a percentage GDP. We could just go back to the old trajectory. But based on where populism is around the globe and and where U.S. politics appear to be running right now, it does appear that the the, the trend of globalization is going to stay on pause for a while. And that has implications for how to invest in your portfolio. We still right. think you should invest globally, find companies, regardless of whether they're domiciled, that have earnings growth potential, attractive valuations. But we also see an opportunity in finding companies that are domiciled around the world, but have lots of domestic sales exposure. Right. Because if you're selling within your own country, you're less vulnerable to possible tariffs, to possible retrenchment of globalization. And certainly something that we, we've seen a lot of in this past decade, and we'll see even more in the next decade, is technology disruption. And and there's this particular slide that I love, and I think Laura Kane was on the show, this was five or six months ago, when we were talking about cord cutting, I think, specifically. And one of the things I love of that slide is that it talked about how many years it took for 50 million people to get involved in the new technology. And they started with the airplane. And I think it was almost 60 years till 50 million people in the world used the airplane. And they worked their way down through all different types of technology, ending with cell phones, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven years, and then social media, major social media names. And then one particular name in China, which is a social media company that a lot of people use for payments, mm -hmm. um, was actually took less than seven months for 50 million people. Yeah. And apparently when you go to China, this is how you pay for your meals using that particular. So technology is obviously something that we're going to watch very closely throughout the next decade. I noticed, Justin, that your team mentions lower returns and higher volatility ahead in this report. So how can investors account for this in their portfolios at this point? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think that the most important thing is have the right framework for deciding what level of risk to take in your portfolio. If your framework is, I want to get 5% return no matter what the market's giving me, then your portfolio would need to shift based on where the opportunity set is, and you might need to take more risk to achieve that same goal. We prefer to think about risk-taking in the context of your, of your actual you know, spending goals. 
out of your portfolio. And we use something called the Liquidity Longevity Legacy Framework to help us sort out how to think about short-term, medium-term, and, and long-term time horizon decisions. Each of them has unique risks and opportunities that, that need to be addressed. The most important thing to remember is we haven't had a bear market in this last decade. There will likely be a bear market in the next decade. I don't think I'm being a hero by predicting that. No, no. The average, the average market cycle. Right. This is the longest market cycle in history. It would be incredible for us to make it to 2030 without a bear market happening in the meantime. That being said, bear markets are not that scary in reality. They're definitely painful to go through, but they don't cause that much damage. And there's a lot of steps we can take to prepare for a temporary bout of, of losses, which is what a bear market is. The first and foremost thing is to make sure that you've got cash flow needs met out of assets that are not equities right. for the next three to five years, because that's what it takes for a diversified portfolio to get back to another all-time high if a bear market happens. The second thing is for the other assets, the ones that you're going to be spending for, for your retirement needs, what we call longevity, you want to be taking enough risk to meet your goals. And you need to you need to have saved enough to retire and you need to invest with enough risk so that you can sustain your retirement. And so that does require maybe adjusting to a lower return environment by taking a little bit more risk in that part of your portfolio. And you can do that without really taking more risk because your liquidity strategy, which meets the next three to five years of your spending needs, it'll stop you from needing to sell risk assets at bear market prices, mm. which is really the risk. The bear markets are not damaging because you see a loss in your statement. They're damaging because you have to sell the S&P 500 at a discount to its value. Right. And so if, you, if you've got a buffer, which is the liquidity strategy, to protect you against that, then it allows you to unlock a lot of potential by embracing volatility and taking advantage of sell-offs. And then the legacy strategy, which is, you know, assets that are in excess of what you need for the rest of your life. This is money to go to the next generation, to go to philanthropy. These are things that have an ultra long time horizon. They don't have defined cash flow needs. And so there's no issue with selling at bear market prices. You can afford to take even more risk in this category and even adopt investment strategies that might be suboptimal or too risky for other parts of your portfolio. By viewing all consideration, all sort of risks and, and opportunities through this framework, it is possible to invest in a way that reflects your life, reflects your goals, but also allows you to address any sort of tail risks that you're worried about. Mm -hmm. Well, Justin Waring, thank you very much for this brief look at the year ahead 2020 and the decade ahead. As we say goodbye to the tens, I guess it's best to quote the Grateful Dead, believe it or not, and not Springsteen, as I usually do, and say, what a long, strange trip it's been. Proving, though, as Bruce wrote, that sometimes you do learn more from a three-minute record than you ever learned in school. Okay, Bruce fans, we got that in. Seriously, though, to summarize what you heard today, I think when it comes to investing in general, it's essential to try and ignore the daily noise and take a longer-term view and focus on what we call at UBS the wealth way, which Justin mentioned briefly, liquidity, longevity, and legacy. And remember, as I say every week on this podcast, when it comes to saving for your future, always pay yourself first. We're going to link to the year ahead and planning for the decade ahead reports on our show page. And on a personal note, I just want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to not only to today's podcast, but for hanging in there with me on year one of Financially Speaking the podcast, and 45 episodes of Financially Speaking. Special thanks to all my friends at Resonate Recording in Kentucky who have done brilliant work editing the show. I guess it's all the good bourbon down there. And I also want to send out a special shout out to the team of folks in the UBS marketing department who have believed in me and this show from the get-go. 
Jeff Spencer, Laurie Zaksuski, and of course, my brother from another mother in there, Anthony Pastore, who hosts his own exceptional UBS on-air podcast right here in the studio where we're sitting today. Last but certainly not least, my team in Westfield, the Slater Trainer Group, my partners and trainer, and Crystal Wilkinson, who truly are the heart and soul of our financial advisory practice. So I wish everybody a happy holiday, a happy new year, and we will be back with more Financially Speaking in 2020. Hey, take care. 